The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good morning. My name is Shannon Sword. I'm the college and career pastor here at Temple Bible Church, and, uh, and it really is my, my privilege to be here with you today. Um, I've been married for 26 years uh, to my lovely bride. We, we, just, uh, we just celebrated our 26th wedding anniversary. And all blissful years, I just want you to know, right? And I've got three great kids. I, I tell folks I'm, I'm a blessed man. I, um, it, it's, it's exciting to, to see the, just the, the, the confidence and the relationship that, uh, that I share with my kids. Um, my middle child, Emma, I was going to give you an update. She, uh, when she was here uh, with all of our high school graduates to tell you about what their plans were for next year, um, she said her plan was to go to Oklahoma State University if she did not make the Kilgore Ranger at dance team. And I'm excited to tell you that she made the team. So uh, we are really proud of her. Um, she was number 89, and, and uh, we got the shot there below uh, their, their little marquee. Uh, but we really are. So she had to compete against 100 girls for 36 spots, and it just took so much courage, something I would have never had the courage to do. So... Um, Kudos to her. And as a dad, um, and I think all you dads out there can sympathize with this, that I was just really excited knowing I was, we were going to be making a four-hour car ride home, you know, me with these three women, that it was going to be a happy car ride home and not a sad car ride home, you know, right? Woo! So I was, I was doubly excited for that one. Funny, uh, funny situation this week. Uh, we have Pulse uh, on Thursday nights at our house, uh, college ministry. And I was talking to one of my college guys, I hadn't seen him in a few weeks, and uh, found out I was going to be preaching, and he said, well, do you, you feel like you're ready? I mean, you're, you're ready for this thing. I said, man, I'd say all my thoughts, and it seems like for the last several weeks, just everything is filtered through this message. I can't think of anything else. I feel like I'm like nine months pregnant, ready just to, to birth this baby of a message, Right? And then I made the fatal mistake. I said, yeah, I think I understand what a pregnant woman goes through. <laughs> I mean, you could almost hear the, the tires squealing as the gals all turned around and looked at me like, oh, no. My wife is like, uh, you, 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 do not, you do not know what that, what that is like. The guys were worried for me, but it was okay. There was no blood spilled. All is good. I backed off. It really is my pleasure, though, to be here with you today, and, uh, and, and I really am glad to finally give birth to uh, this baby of a message. Actually, this makes it twins, I guess, since this is the second hour, right? As the metaphor goes. So, <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so, so much for the opportunity of the body of Christ to come together Father, I praise you that, uh, that we do get together and that we do get to assemble and recognize the grace that is ours. Father, what an amazing thing to know that we have peace with God and to draw close to you and to be able to honor you and worship you. So, Father, I pray that now, in my desire to bring the word, the word that I feel like you have, uh, have really been putting inside me, Father, I pray that I would be behind the cross and it would be your message that we hear today for your purposes and plans. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. I've entitled this message, A Prisoner of the Kingdom. Uh, we're all prisoners in a sense, are we not? I mean, um, the adage goes that we're a prisoner of time, 
Um, folks say that we're a prisoner of our desires. Uh, some have said, you know, we're a, we're a prisoner of our taxes, of the IRS. Scripture puts it this way when it says that all the world is a prisoner of sin. Cambridge, the Cambridge Dictionary says that, uh, that a prisoner is someone who is under the control of someone else and not physically free. Well, Paul says that the only reason that he is a prisoner of Rome is because he was first and foremost a prisoner of a much greater kingdom and a much greater king than Caesar, truly his king, Jesus the Messiah. And therefore, Paul was compelled to take the gospel to his Jewish brethren and then to the uttermost parts of the world because he was a prisoner of the kingdom of God. And so my question from the outset of this message to all of us today, for us to ponder is this, are you a kingdom, uh, excuse me, are you a prisoner of that kingdom? Are you a prisoner of our king? So as you ponder that, would you turn in your Bibles or your apps to Acts 28, we're, we're here finally in this last chapter of Acts And here we're going to look at three aspects of being a prisoner of the kingdom. The message of the judge, the manner of the criminal, and the mission of the defense. So here in this final chapter, I don't believe that that Luke is primarily wanting to hit all the points to give us a history lesson by any means. I think in essence, what he is trying to do for us is to show us how God, the impartial judge and king, has declared that Paul is in fact innocent and that Paul is his mouthpiece. Listen to this guy as as he takes the message of the judge Throughout the world. The message of the judge is that Jesus is the hope of Israel and the world. You see, it's clear that uh, that God wanted Paul to take the message of the kingdom all the way to the center of the kingdom of the world at that time. Its epicenter was Rome, and Jesus had told Paul as much right after a little dust up that Paul got into with, with the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Uh, in Jerusalem. We read about it in Acts 23 where it says that the, the dispute had become so violent that the commander was afraid that Paul was going to be torn to pieces. I mean, these are, these are the scholarly leaders of Israel, right? He's afraid they're going to be torn to, he's going to be torn to pieces and he ordered the troops to go down, take Paul away by force, bring him back to the barracks. And then the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and he says, take courage as you have testified about me In Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. The way Luke documents Paul's testimony here at the very end of Acts is very succinctly when Paul says in Acts 28.20, he said, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. You see, the message of the judge and king was being told all along the path of Paul's journey to Rome. God was literally populating Paul's experiences with all these signs and wonders and miracles, clearly demonstrating that Paul was innocent and giving him this amazing platform to share the message of our king, the message of the judge of the world, that Jesus is the hope of the entire world. So let me show you today God's provision for Paul's proclamation. 
The first things, three things I want to point out, though, are by way of review. We've looked at them in weeks prior. If you go all the way back to Acts 23, we see that there was a group of Jewish men who made a vow that they would not eat or drink until they saw this man, Paul, killed. And God foiled the whole plan. They, under the cover of night, the guards get him out. They take him to Caesarea by the sea, and their, and their plan is foiled. And, and, and we just have to assume, I guess, they, they lived out their vow and died of hunger, starvation. I don't know. But, but then again, we see once again, um, with the, all the governors and kings, with Felix and Festus and Agrippa, that they were unable, they were unsuccessful in closing the case on Paul, something that they very much wanted to do. Matter of fact, Festus had conferred with Agrippa and they said, we see nothing that really involves Rome any farther. And they wanted to send him back to Jerusalem to be tried. And when they, when, and when they tell Paul this, he appeals to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. And so Festus tells him, to Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you will go. Once again, foiling the plans of men. Um, Then we see last week, Gary shared with us the message of how the sea in all her fury was unable to snuff out the life of Paul or any of the 276 men that were aboard that ship. They they, they boarded the, the ship after Paul really encouraged them, this is not a good time to sail out in the open seas. They did it anyway. A huge squall comes up and for two weeks, They're being pushed about in the ship by these high winds to the point to where they fretted whether they would ever even see the light of day again. They thought they were going to die. An angel of the Lord comes to Paul and says, no, you are going to make it and all 276 men with you. This amazing platform. Paul gets to break bread with these men to announce to them that, that God has told him, We're going to be okay. And no doubt, an opportunity to share his testimony and the message of our great God and King. And then that brings us to where we're at today. So let's let's read in Acts 28, verses 1 through 6. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and they welcomed us because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live." But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or to suddenly fall dead. But after waiting for a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and they said, he must be a god or perhaps a friend of the gods. Man has always, since antiquity it seems, had a love-fear relationship with snakes. Am I right? I mean, we, we, we... if we're wise, know enough to respect them and to give them their distance. I don't know if y'all heard about this guy out in California this week who thought it would be really cool to pick up a live rattlesnake and to get a selfie with it. (laughs) While he's getting the selfie, the snake reared up and struck him in the arm. The man had to be rushed to the hospital, to the emergency room, where heroic measures were taken to save the man's life. They did save the arm. They did save the man's life. But he, in fact, is going to 
He wakes up to find he has a medical bill of $153,000, and most of that is due to the pharmaceutical costs of the rare antivenom of a rattlesnake. They depleted two hospitals to find enough of this stuff to, 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 to save him. So let this be a lesson to all of us, right, that uh, be careful what the subject matter is of your next selfie, right? It could be very, very costly in your life. Well, the, island, the, the islanders see Paul and all the party being washed ashore, and, uh, and it says that they were very kind. They were very hospitable. They built a fire, probably many fires for him, and you can just see all the guys out there gathering firewood, and Paul's, he's one of these guys, and he gathers the, a bundle of, of firewood, brings it next to a fire, and as he's putting the wood on the fire, doesn't realize there's a snake in there, a cold-blooded animal being warmed up by the heat of this fire on this cold day. And at some point when he reaches next, it latches on, it strikes Paul and holds tight to his hand to where the islanders look and see this, this viper dangling from Paul's hand. Paul, literally, you, you get the idea that he had to, you know, put his body, put the, the snake's body over the flames to get him to release, release his death grip. And then Paul kind of goes about his way, right? I mean, he's convinced God's going to get him to Rome. He doesn't have to worry about this. And the islanders are beginning to take bets, right? Yeah, I give him three minutes. I mean, they knew the snakes. I give him five. Well, he seemed to make it, you know, he seemed to be in good shape. I'll give him 10 minutes tops. And you also kind of get this idea that Paul continues working. So I bet they had to literally kind of follow him around, you know, see when he was going to drop dead somewhere. They're watching him, and there's a narrative that's going on in their mind now. And the the narrative that's been put in motion is this. Ah, now we understand why all these guys came to shore without a ship and without any provisions, because the sea a symbol of judgment, was trying to get her man and was unsuccessful. The man was Paul, and he clearly is a murderer. That would have been part of their, of their um, uh, framework, of their thinking, right? But justice will not be, will not be um, avoided this time because the viper has lashed onto him, and so they know this guy, something is going on with him. But in fact... Nothing happens. The minutes turn to hours, and eventually they, they, they recognize, well, maybe we have it wrong. Maybe this guy really is a god. Maybe he's a friend of the gods. No doubt the word spreads around the island. There happens to be a wealthy landowner there, Publius. He invites Paul and his party in to, to care for them, give them some food and shelter for several days. And no doubt, another platform for Paul to share the message of the king, right? And he tells him his testimony, tells him about all these signs and wonders. And I'm sure that Publius thinks, aha, takes him up and introduces him to his very sick father, who likely has Malta fever. And that's not like Malta meal. That's, that's a little bit more serious. Malta fever was when the bacteria, a bacteria that's carried in goat's milk in that part of the world gets transmitted to a person when they drink it, they become, they become very, very ill, high fever and dysentery-like symptoms. They're very painful and can last from months to years. So Paul goes in and prays for him, lays hands on him, and he is instantly healed. Word begins to spread around the island, 
and, and all the sick are brought to Paul. And so Paul and Dr. Luke, over the next three months, as they winter there on the island, just go about healing folks and having the, uh, this amazing platform to talk about how Jesus is the hope of a broken world. God, the true judge, is giving Paul quite the platform to share the gospel from. A foiled assassination attempt, a shipwreck, a viper bite, and the healing of all these islanders. All tremendous hardships, no doubt, but clear provisions from God for Paul to proclaim God's message that Jesus is the hope of the world. Have you ever wondered why hard things happen? Why hardships come into our life? Why do we experience brokenness and sickness and unsuccessful plans? Why does God allow these trials and tribulations into our lives? Because sometimes it's only through tragedy that our lives can rub up against one another, can crash into one another and into the Lord in a way that gets our attention. God uses tragedy in this way. He's able to take it and do things with it. Bill and Christy Bowers are our faithful missionaries serving in Lebanon. And by the way, you need to be here tonight to hear the, the stories of how God is using tragedy right, right in the Middle East for his plans and for his purposes. Some amazing stories. You need to come back tonight and, and, and hear him share. Well, he was sharing with us in staff meeting about this conflict going on in Syria, this terrible conflict going on in Syria, this war-torn country, and how that's having an impact on Turkey and Jordan and, and Lebanon. As many as, as possibly a million and a half refugees have fled out of Syria into Lebanon, and, and the Lebanese government has not established any refugee camps officially. And so these folks are just kind of trying to find a place to plant themselves temporarily, Right? And the churches, there's churches there in Lebanon, and and all of a sudden, they have seen their attendance double in size in some situations, as all these war-torn Syrian Muslim refugees are right there sitting amongst them. Now, these are two people that are highly suspicious of one another, two people whose lives might not ever come in contact with, with one another, and yet in the midst of this brokenness, God is able to use this opportunity, and now these, these Syrian refugees are hearing the message of the one true judge and king, that Jesus is, in fact, the only hope of the world. Guess what? God's kingdom is pressing in everywhere. God's kingdom is pressing in all around the world, even right here in the U.S. Now, we may not be in a war-torn country, but you don't have to watch the news for very long before you realize there's all these pockets of tragedy beginning to happen in our country, aren't there? And so we, we recognize that it's happening even in our midst. And matter of fact, I would submit to you that that if it's not tragedy, and we've, it's been a while since we've seen something like that happen here in central Texas, but the truth is this, that there is brokenness everywhere. There are broken lives all around us. I would even say that right here, our lives are a picture of brokenness. We are broken people. The truth is this, we're really good on a Sunday morning at tucking in, you know, all of our brokenness and making the appearance at church 
and, and because there's no, you know, real long conversations that are going to be expected of us and such, we've learned how to kind of maneuver here and not have to even share our brokenness with one another, not have to talk about it. But here's the thing, you guys. God, God wants people, wants the people of God to be real people and not just nice people. He wants his people to be known as folks that are real and not simply nice. Being nice is not the goal of our Christian endeavor. God wants our lives to press into him and to one another. And he's provided many places where we can testify uh, to one another about the goodness, the power, and the grace of God. And how his power really is made perfect in the midst of our weakness. Let me give you just a few ways that you can move into greater community here at TBC. The first would be this, that if you profess Christ and you've never followed after him in baptism, I would challenge you to do so, to be openly identified with your Savior. It's really the first step of obedience that Christ calls his disciples to. And I would even say this, sometimes if we don't take that step in our lives, it can have this strange ability to impede our walk with the Lord. And and I also want to add this. It's great seeing kids be baptized. It's great seeing teenagers be baptized. But there is something amazing, amazingly powerful when adults step up and declare that this is what God is doing in their life. This is how God has got a hold of their life for the purpose of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And, and, and we'll testify to that. So would you consider being baptized? Next month, we're going to be announcing to you the opportunity to do that once again. If you're new to TBC in the last months or year, but you've never really been introduced to us formally as a church, we would invite you next week to TBC introductions. It's going to happen, I think, at the 11 o'clock hour. I don't remember what I said, and I know I really should remember what I said in the video announcements, right? I'm the guy that's supposed to remember that. My wife always reminds me of that, but I I don't remember. It's 9.30. There it is. So it's not 11. 9.30. I had it wrong. But, but come and you can hear about our distinctives as a church, our vision, and meet some of our staff and, uh, and leaders. It goes without saying, additionally, that if you are not in a small group setting, a home group, I would challenge you to become a part of one. Because that is really the best place for the one another's that, that the New Testament talks about to take place. So get yourself involved in a in genuine community in a home group. And then finally, I'm excited about... Um, that in the month of September, that whole month, you need to be here for every Sunday because we are going to be launching a, a series on justice. It's a series that we've put together here. God's put it on our heart as a staff. Some of our pastors have written the curriculum that's going to go along with that and be taught in some of the Sunday school classes and home groups following the week that we're preaching it. But it's going to be a great month of, of us learning what, what it looks like for the people of God to make an impact on a hurting and lost world right here in our community. The message of the judge is that Jesus is the hope, not only of Israel, but to the world. And God uses trials and God uses tribulations. He uses hardships to give us a platform to share that hope. So I have to ask the next question. How do you respond to trials and hardships that come into your life? When they happen, do you fuss and fume and fight with God? Or do you embrace them and live in gentleness towards everyone around you? 
What manner, in other words, what manner of life do you choose when times get tough? You see, the manner of the criminal is Paul's confidence in God's promises and provision. That's the manner of the criminal that we're looking at, of of Paul, and we see his confidence in God's promises and provision. So they, they, they finished wintering on the island. They hired a ship to take them the remainder of the journey. And, and, and really, all the supplies were lost, so it was out of the love and the kindness of all the islanders who brought all the provisions, not only for Paul, but for the, the whole team, for the, for, for the ship to be able to make this last leg of the journey. And they come to um, the seaport of Patoli. It's about 170 miles south of Rome, and, uh, and, and it's there that... I think Paul recognizes this is the last leg of the journey. This is the place where we walk from here on in. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever been on a trip, when I'm out on a trip and I know I'm returning home, there's just certain landmarks that as I get closer, you know, to Temple, my foot gets a little heavier on the gas pedal. And I'm hoping there's no officers hearing that, but, but it does. It kind of does a little bit. You know, I'm excited to get home, to decompress, to, to, to go to the bathroom, you know, all these basic necessities, and, and I can't wait to get there. And I suspect that that was going on in the mind and the heart of Paul as well. I mean, we think, well, he's Paul. Surely that didn't happen. Of course it did. Of course it did. And look what, uh, what we find there. Acts 28, 14, and 15 says this. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. And at the sight of these men, Paul thanks God and he was encouraged. So there would have been a number of believers that would have been living in and around Rome. They would have heard the gospel from way back on the day of Pentecost. They would have been there in Jerusalem. Some of the Jewish folks Uh, that were back there for Passover. They would have heard the gospel then, come to faith and carried their newfound faith back to Rome and share that among their family and friends. And so the church was born in Rome years ago. Matter of fact, the the letter of Romans was sent to these Roman believers. So we know they're there. What's amazing is this, is that they, they recognize Paul is coming and they have the insight, they have the understanding to know we really need to encourage him after everything that he's been through. No doubt holding tightly to the promises and provisions of God, but the truth is he's got to be exhausted from the journey. And so they come, they travel 20, 30 miles to Patoli, and they rent proper residence where they can have food, where they can have, where Paul can receive rest, where the party can, can, can recuperate from this journey. And, and look at what, what, uh, what Luke says here, his commentary on this. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. I mean, these guys were truly a sight for sore eyes to Paul. And I think when he saw them, he saw in them not just who they were, but he recognized them as the very kindness of his Savior. The kindness of his Savior, meeting all of his needs, his spiritual needs, his emotional needs, his his physical needs to decompress. Philippians 4 and 5 
I've just thought about this passage so many times over the years. I used to always focus on 6 and 7, you know, don't be anxious for anything but in everything with prayer and petition, you know. We learned that one, but, uh, but I had not connected the dots. Because what it says here is that rejoice in the Lord always, literally in all ways, in all situations, in every single circumstance, in all ways. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. I love this, this, the correlation between what our perception is, what my perception is of God's care in my life and how I'm going to then live with those around me. Because there really is a correlation there, is there not? The way that we, the, the way we sense God's closeness to our life causes us to live gently and peacefully with those around us. But, but times when we feel that he's very distant from our lives, we live much more coarsely and harshly with those around us. Paul seemed to have an awareness, though, that God's kingdom was always pressing in everywhere and that his plans could always be interrupted by the the surprise, and yet not such a surprise, intrusion of God's kingdom into his plans. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession, in Christ, and, he th- and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one were the smell of death, to the other were the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? What is the aroma of your life? What's the aroma of your life? I mean, do you care what it smells like in the nostrils of God, what it smells like to to others around you. Because the manner of your life, your attitudes, your actions, your words, your, your pursuits, your priorities really do reflect how you see God and how you see yourself. You may have noticed that the, the, the word that I chose for this outline point was criminal. And I thought about that quite a bit, the manner of the criminal. Ooh, it sounds so harsh, right? But it was no accident. I used it because I think we often forget where our relationship with with our God and and, and King begins. For Paul, it had happened so many years earlier when he was on his way to Damascus to hunt down all the leaders of this sect of the Nazarene, the way as it was called, as as Christianity began, right? He He was there full of spit and fire and just knew he was doing the right thing. This is what God had called him to do when Jesus meets him there on that road in all of his glory. And Paul is confronted with God's power and God's truth and his, and his mercy. You see, Paul knew in that moment that he was truly a criminal before God. He says later to Timothy that he was a blasphemer. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and I was a violent man. All wrapped up, by the way, in this pretty little package of a highly respected Jewish scholar. But once he came in contact with the true Savior, with the true God, he recognized how wretched his heart really was. And I think Paul knew, being the scholar that he was, he knew what the punishments should be there in the presence of God. And yet God showed him mercy. God showed him kindness. 
And I don't think Paul ever forgot God's mercy and kindness in his life. You see, Paul remained a prisoner of the king the rest of his days. Have you? It may be that while you may feel like your heart's not perfect, that that you don't see it as, as utterly broken. I mean, nothing as serious as being criminal and all that, right? But if you don't, then you probably think that all you need God for is just a little help, just a little boost, not complete transformation. God's provision of the cross, you guys, it stands at the crossroads of all of our journeys, not just Paul's. It stands at the crossroads of all of our journeys because, you see, Jesus didn't endure the cross to encourage us. He didn't endure the cross to encourage us. Jesus endured the cross to transform us. The more we understand that, the more that that our lives will be a compelling aroma of the gospel to, to everybody around us and not just another tired version of trying to be nice enough. Another tired version of just trying to be good enough in our own strength. Because this is the thing. The message of the judge transforms the manner of the criminal. The message of the judge, of a compassionate and loving God who's provided for every single one of us at the cross through Jesus' work there, should transform our lives. And at the heart, we're all criminals. Paul's manner truly reflected the message that he shared all the way to his destination, all the way to the epicenter of the known world, to Rome. He knew that was his mission because from there, the message could be taken to the, to the uttermost parts of the world. The mission of the defense is given to us all the way back in Acts 1.8. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said to his disciples that you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Rome was the, uh, the center of the known world at that time. It had a population of about a million people living there. Isn't that crazy? All the way back then, a million people living in this city. Scholars believe there may have been anywhere from twenty to 50,000 Jews that lived there and were part of as many as 12 different synagogues that were there. And Paul was eager to get there. He was eager to find out where he stood because he really didn't know. He didn't know if his reputation preceded him, Right? And he didn't know if maybe a delegation had been sent from Jerusalem ahead of him to stir things up. So he was anxious to get there and find out, where do I stand? Well, let's see. Acts 28, 16 through 22. Let's see what he says. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. And when they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors. I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. And they examined me and they wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you now and to talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am here bound with this chain. And they replied, 
We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. I'm sure that's the first time for Paul to hear that, right? But we want to, to hear your views, what they are, for, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect, the sect of the Nazarene. Can you imagine Paul's response? I mean, not only is the report good, but these guys are saying, hey, do you mind if we come back so you can give us your defense of this hope? I mean, would that be okay? I'm sure Paul's like, well, I don't know. I have to check my calendar. I've got this whole chain to polish every day. Got to have locks and bagels with the guard. I just don't know if I have the time, right? I mean, he was excited about this. So they, they, they set up a date, and when they return, they bring back even a larger delegation of Jews. And it says that Paul shared his defense of how Jesus was the hope of Israel with them from the Old Testament scriptures and how Abraham and Moses and the law and the prophets all clearly pointed to Jesus being this long-awaited hope, this Messiah. And it says that some believed, which is exciting, some believed, but most rejected Paul's appeal. And then he quotes from Isaiah the way that Jesus Uh, use this passage out of Isaiah. He says, This people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. I mean, this is a scathing statement of judgment. And he goes on to say, Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Boom. Drops the mic, right? The gospel is no longer going to be preached first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Paul knows that the Lord has stirred up this hunger within the Gentile nations and they're ready to receive the gospel. So this really marks the end of the beginning, if you will, of the inauguration of the church age. The gospel's now strategically going to be taken to the Gentile nations. So after Jesus' ascension, after he commissions the apostles to the mission, at the, after the, the church's beginnings, its humble beginnings, and after all the Jewish resistance, the disappointments, the surprises, and the incredible hardships all along the way, Luke concludes his letter with these two sentences. He says, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, unhindered. Akulatas. It's the Greek word from which we derive the word unhindered. Without delay, without interruption, without difficulty, impediments, or any obstacle. I think that right here, as we, as we come to the end of this letter, Luke really wanted us to slow down and ponder his words with this provocative thought that the mission of the defense, the power and the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ was going to continue to go forth in the world absolutely unhindered. In spite of all the things that we have seen unfold in Acts, in spite of all those things that were perceived hindrances, all those perceived obstacles, all those perceived hardships, the truth of the matter is that the gospel in the midst of that finds its greatest truth in the midst of 
all the brokenness. And it goes forth absolutely unhindered. I love Colossians 1.6. It says, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. You see, God's kingdom is pressing in everywhere. It's pressing in all over the world. It's pressing in right here in our midst. And God's going to use all the hardships, all the racial tensions, all the wars, all the terror, all the sickness, all the brokenness that's in and around us for his purposes. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, his work remains absolutely unhindered. And so let's be confident because our God, our mission We're going to prevail. Our God is going to prevail. Paul, who had once been a criminal before God, became a devoted prisoner of the king. His life was lived carrying the message of the judge in a manner of a a criminal turned servant, knowing that the mission of the defense of the gospel was going to be handed off to Luke and to Silas, and to Timothy, and to so many others all the way down to centuries until it was handed to you on that faithful day that you came to hear the gospel in all of its truth and in all of its grace. And to you, and to you, and to me. And so I ask you, as I, as I invite the worship team back up here to lead us as we worship our great and powerful God, I want to ask you this. Are you a prisoner of the kingdom? Are you a prisoner of our great king? Because we have an amazing mission and it's not yet finished. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. Father, you are a God who prevails. And Lord, we, we, we have to face the fact that as we look at our hearts Father, we're confronted by the criminal nature of our hearts before you, the rebellion, Father, the desire to do things our way, to take matters into our own hands. And yet, Father, you are pressing in all around us and using all manner of tragedies around the world and right here, even in our midst, to get our attention, to to crash into our lives in ways that cause us to pay attention to you. So Father, I pray that today that we would really take seriously the, the question of, are we living for our Savior? Are we truly a prisoner of a mighty king who's going to accomplish his plans and purposes all around the world? Father, we praise you. You deserve all the glory. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.